This is the first of a series of interviews made with John Morton, taken at Paraparamu, New Zealand, on 5 December 2013. Okay, John, um, answering these sort of questions that have been posed to us from uh, from afar, um, one of the, the things is they're very interested, of course, in your background and how you got into aviation in the first place. So, uh, as we were talking the other day, you, you said that right from being a young child, you had a deep interest in aviation. Yes, that's quite true. And uh, <coughs> I was a great model builder in the days when that's uh, what young men did when they were um, not at school. And um, fortunately, the Second World War came along and gave me an opportunity to get into aviation, which probably was unique. Um, and everything went from there on. In fact, it's quite true to say, I think, that I never ever had any control over what happened to me. Um, all I had was the enthusiasm that just followed, and luckily led in the right direction. Yeah, okay, so um, you got into the Fleet Air Arm. Yeah. Uh, what year was that? 42. And what was your age at that stage? 17. 17, so you got in pretty young. Yes, I had a lot of trouble with the school uh, trying to get out. Uh, they weren't very keen on it, um, but uh, I was determined to to go as a volunteer because that gave you a choice of uh, what you could do. Um, if you were conscripted, of course, you went where they told you to. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Okay, and following your basic sort of recruit training, where did you learn to fly? Well, um, as was absolutely typical of the armed services, um, after I'd finished my basic training at uh, HMS St. Vincent, which was square bashing, gunnery and all the rest of it, um, they gave you a, a small uh, form to fill in and it asked you where you would like to do your flying training. And uh, one of the bases that was uh, mentioned was in the UK and not very far away from Manchester. So uh, I thought, well, yeah, I'll put that down and I can go home and see the folks. Of course, they sent me to the United States, <laughs> which was really a wonderful thing because at that particular time, the training that the United States gave under the Admiral Power Scheme was probably the finest in the world, and uh, I was dumped into that. And uh, the Americans looked after us in every respect. They were really marvelous. Yeah, so where did, where did you go? To Pensacola? Or? We went to, uh, to Gross Eel in Michigan just outside okay. Detroit, yeah. uh, to do our basic training, and there we flew into Estiamans, and uh, we went solo and went through the course there. If we survived that, we were then sent to Pensacola and to the various outstations around Pensacola, Softly yeah. Field and that yeah. old place. And uh, it was tough. Um, the Americans were very comprehensive and very ruthless. We would do about just over 300 hours by the time we got our pilot's wings. And at any time, right up to the last minute, you could be failed. And uh, a lot of people were. In the Empire Training School um, up in Canada and um, South Africa, about 160 hours saw you get your wings. And yeah. we, you know, we were very nervous about this because we yeah. thought, you know, these other guys are getting their wings and they're going off to the war and we're still here at training school. Yeah, I guess the thing that you probably found in the States was that uh, as opposed to the UK weather, the weather generally was much better in terms of the flying. You had you know, lots oh, of clear yes. days. <coughs> yes, it, it, yeah. the weather never seemed to be a, much of a problem except for one thing. And that was um, we got the seasons wrong. We went to Grosseau in Michigan in the middle of winter. And we went in summer down to Florida. <laughs> and then for operational training, we went back up to the north of Maine. So we got the seasons entirely wrong, and we had no clothes. You know, I went out there with normal naval uniform and uh, nothing to wear when it was cold. But the Americans, by and large, looked after us. But flying the Stearman in uh, temperatures way below zero was quite something. We had to, to wear face masks. And um, which was very restricting for a pupil, particularly. 
If you turned your head, your eyes sort of weren't looking out of the right holes <laughs> anymore, and that made it made it much more difficult for us. Um, but the training was brilliant. It was comprehensive and totally extravagant. How did you find the steam and as a basic trainer, was it? Oh, it's one of my ideal aircraft. If somebody said that you can have any biplane in the world that you want, I'd say I have a, a Stearman. Because it was big, it, it was tough, and it was capable, and you could do almost anything you like with it. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was very benign. It didn't have a nasty um, corner anywhere, really, that I came across anywhere. So, so after the Stearman, what did you convert on to? We went from the Stearman on to SNJs, which was a Volte, um, we called it the Volte Vibrator because it used to shape like that. It looked very much like a Harvard, but not quite. And uh, it wasn't much of an aircraft. Nobody liked it. Um, it was uncomfortable. It was vibratory. It didn't have very much performance, but it was a good stepping stone, and from that we went on to the um, to the Harvard, which was a, a nice type of aircraft, was well organised. Yeah, yeah, and a good and uh, being typical American aircraft in terms of the transition between the types of cockpit layouts were very similar. Yes, um, that's what they always seem to have got right, I guess. And the Harvard, of course, was a big step up from the Stearman in that that you. Um, had a lot more horsepower and an enclosed cockpit, so you're in a, a different environment, retractable undercarriage. Yeah. Yes, it was, uh, it was a very good trainer. I have a great deal of respect for it. And uh, it taught us really an awful lot about the, the sort of flying that we were going to have to do, but without any sort of serious implication. We did our instrument flying training on it, which was good. Um, it wasn't a well. It wasn't a bad aerobatic aircraft, so you could dogfight it quite reasonably well. Did you do any um, dummy carrier landings, dummy deck? Not, not at this stage of yeah. flying training. It's still no, basic. It came principles. later when yeah. we had our operational aircraft, mm-hmm. because we went to the states to be trained as as pilots. We were provided with everything that we needed by the Americans until in the end they provided us with a squadron of Corsairs and everything that went with it. And we went to do our uh, operational training on that outfit. And that's when we did our uh, carrier training in um, Chesapeake Bay, I think. Okay. Yeah. So again, the step up from the Harvard to the Corsair uh, mm. is again two different worlds. It was. Um, but the Corsair was such a big aircraft the Harvard wasn't small, but it wasn't um, outrageously large. But you climbed into a Corsair, and you were a long way from the ground, and there was a hell of a lot of airplane around you. And uh, it was very powerful, and could be quite dangerous if you didn't know what you were doing. But, uh, however, it turned out that by the time we got to that stage, we were fairly competent people. And uh, we took the Corsair in our stride, really. Yeah. One of the things that always amused me with the Corsair being a, a combative aircraft is the placard that says no intentional spinning. So the aircraft wasn't a, designed to be spun unless you inadvertently got into a spin. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that many of us actually saw that notice <laughs> because the first thing I, I did when I got to know the aircraft was to go up and do a, a load of aerobatics, and of course the aerobatics that I knew about were based on the stuff we used to do in the Stearman. And uh, so I tried a spin, and that seemed to be all right. Um, I did a couple of three turns and came out of it okay. <laughs> I then decided I'd do some other aerobatics, like loops and rolls, and uh, um, inland turns, and... Uh, then there was something called a snap roll, which was, uh, I, I used to love that in the Stearman. Um, it was a horizontal stall. Uh, you pull a stick hard back and kicked on full rudder. And I did that in the quarter and it nearly broke both my knees. The <laughs> <laughs> stick went back and like that. Bang. I ended up with two very big bruises on the inside and I thought, well, perhaps we won't try that again. <laughs> 
How did you find um, landing the Corsair? Because well, you know, of course, one of the initial problems with the aircraft was that that uh, view forward. Um, yeah, the view forward is always a problem, and of course, we we were taught right from the beginning that the straightaway after the approach was only to be about a hundred yards, if if that. Mm. So you did a turn right onto the touchdown. Yeah, did the curving approach. Yeah. So with luck, you could see what was going on, mm. and. We carried that on through all the way, and uh, you know, when I came to fly after the Navy I, in fixturing aircraft, it's still what I was doing mentally, and I found it very strange to do these straightened approaches that were normal for. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, it, uh, we had no problems with really. But one of the, the, the difficulties, uh, really, that started to come in when we got to the carrier, of course, was the, uh, the question of power stalls and uh, the behavior of the aircraft at full power and low speed, um, which we didn't really discover much about on the, on the runway. Of course, we did a lot of um, uh, dummy deck landings um, on the runway, which were very useful. Did they have arrested traps or just, just marked out? Um, yeah, they did have arrested uh, wires and so mm. on, and uh, the full works. Yeah. Um, the ship that we did it on, and I can't remember what it, what it was called now, but it, something like the Biter or Battler or oh, something yeah, like yeah. that. It was very, very small, and the first time I climbed into the aircraft and got into the cockpit and looked out the side, I couldn't see the ship hardly. <laughs> <laughs> the wind seemed to be way over the side, and I thought, oh, this is maybe all right for take on, but landing it looked a bit small to me. But we, uh, we did it and uh, it was very exciting and I must admit I was scared stiff most of the time, but uh, it was good fun. Mm. And of course, uh, although it had a reputation of being a vicious aircraft, um, in fact when I was first told that we were going on to, to Corsairs, um, I was warned by all kinds of people who had actually flown them in the UK by that time. They saw hard luck, mate, you know, and they burst into flames or they've got just that and the other kind of a problem. But we never actually found that. It behaved itself beautifully in our hands. Yeah. We were properly trained for it. Yeah. As you say, you, that primary training you'd done, the 300 hours under your belt, really gave you a good consolidation. Oh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'd have been idiots if we couldn't have done it by that stage. And the idiots were, were ruthlessly combed out. A lot of my friends uh, disappeared mysteriously. Um, yeah, it was it was wonderful training. It was generosity beyond belief. Everything that we needed was provided by the United States Navy, even the bags in which we carried our clothes and our uniforms, all our flying gear, everything that we needed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you couldn't imagine uh, anything better than that. So what was the first operational carrier that you went to? It was Colossus. Colossus was a, a light fleet. And uh, we went off, really, uh, aimed at the attack on Singapore. And this was quite late in the war, of course. Out of the British Pacific Fleet. Mm. Well, we didn't get to the Pacific. We we went to Ceylon, and we were we were based on Trincomalee when the war finally finished, and we were all geared up there to to go and bomb the daylights out of Singapore. But uh, that didn't happen for us anyway. Ocean got some work in uh, Java and Sumatra, and um, from Trincomalee we went to Singapore when the Japanese had surrendered. And that was quite an eye-opener, because um, we arrived there, and uh, the whole infrastructure of the place was dependent upon the Japanese. The Japanese were still fully armed and patrolling the streets, and they acted as policemen. And uh, a lot of POWs, of course, uh, were there, um, our own people as well as the Japanese. And uh, it was really quite tragic to see what had happened. And uh, the Japanese, I don't know whether they are having it on or what, but a, a lot of PR, POWs were put to work in the airfields, which is where we were, 
cleaning up the ditches and generally sorting things out. And their code of discipline was such that we didn't really understand what was going on. Because as soon as officer appeared within sight, and you know, it could be as far away as the other end of that building, they would all stand up to attention and bow. And of course, this meant a lot of us circulating. Nothing, no work was done for a while. They just kept we, bowing. Yeah, they kept on bowing. <laughs> Eventually, they, they got the message um, that this wasn't necessary. I think it offended them a little bit, but um, nevertheless, it, it was an interesting time, and a tragic time, really. And we were we were able to sort of sample um, a number of Japanese aircraft and also go aboard their ships. And uh, the ships were really very interesting because the ones that we managed to get aboard were, were like frigates, destroyers, that sort of stuff. And uh, Japanese were, by and large, were quite small people, and their ships were built accordingly. I sat in a zero, for instance, one day, and I found that it was extremely difficult to get myself sorted out inside because it was so small. So compact, yeah. 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 So, because the AITU had uh, a number of aircraft at Salita, didn't they? Like yeah. Captured aircraft they were flying. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get a chance to have a fly with anyone? No, unfortunately, we, we were very busy um, doing all kinds of things, and... Uh, we really didn't have much contact with anybody else. Uh, it was quite surprising. The, the whole infrastructure, um, as I say, was still based on what the Japanese had set up. And uh, our boys was, were busy trying to integrate themselves into that without causing a lot of trouble. And uh, it was a, a sort of time that you don't even think about as a, a normal civilian. And uh, it was quite traumatic in many ways, especially when you saw some of the prisoners and what they'd done to them. Yeah. Um, you know, we found out that um, three of the guys in Ocean who'd done attacks on uh, oil installations in Sumatra... Ellenbeg, yeah. You know, they were shot down, captured, and three weeks after the... Um, no, sorry, three days after the um, armistice was signed, they were taken out by a Japanese officer and beheaded. Yeah, one of those was in New Zealand. That's right, yeah. yeah. And uh, we arrived just shortly after that. So you can tell that the, you know... The, the atmosphere was, was still was tense. Yeah. yeah. And you're never quite sure when you saw a Japanese who had a loaded rifle in his hand whether you weren't going to be in trouble or not. But by and large they behaved themselves. Um, and they were disarmed eventually when our people were sorted out. But it took a long time for British forces to move in in sufficient numbers to um, to do the job. Yeah, yeah. So how long did you stay in that area before you uh, recovered? Oh gosh, I can't remember now. Maybe a few Maybe months? A week or two. A week or two, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where'd you go to from there? That's a good question. We, we set off for home, I think. Um, the ship was much in need of, uh, of something to do and some maintenance. We went um, back via Trinco and then through the canal and back home. We seemed to be back home in next to no time. By this time the ship was in a fairly sorry state. It had been working hard most of the time. And for instance, I discovered in my cabin that uh, if you turn the fan off, your chances of ever getting it to, to work again were zero. <laughs> if they'd all been running for years and they had no bearings left. <laughs> so as long as they were red hot, they were okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Did you, yeah, when you got back as, a, as the squadron, did the squadron disembark in the ship? Got oh, back yes. to the UK? So, yeah. Yes. We, um, so what squadron was that? 1835. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yes, we, we um, disembarked, I think it was to Ford, and we discovered then, uh, rather surprisingly, because we thought ourselves as being sort of uh, heroes and back from the war and all the rest of it, um, but the customs had different ideas, <laughs> and the rotten devils, um, they were very good really. Um, they swarmed all over the ship because they realised it would be full of contraband of one sort or another. 
but they did it very well. Um, they would you go up to the customs desk and the customer officer was sitting there, and he'd say, "Now, what did you have to do? What do you have to declare?" So you'd say, oh, 200 cigarettes, you know, the usual stuff." And after a while, he realised that uh, perhaps it would be better to help things along a bit. So he would tell you what you were going to declare. <laughs> and <laughs> what they didn't know, of course, was that the the ammunition bays in every course were actually jammed full of stuff. <laughs> and I don't think they got to know about that, but they were very good. As I say, they told you what they were going to extract from you, and you paid up, and that was it. Yeah. Which was fair enough. Which is good, yeah. Okay. So how long did you stay in the Navy after that, John? Oh, I was in the Navy, gosh, until 1955. Yeah. So when did you first find out about uh, helicopters and what they could do. Floyd Bennett Field, where the, the um, 1835, which had just gone down to do its deck training in Chesapeake Bay, flew up through um, Floyd Bennett on its way north to um, Lewiston in Maine. And there on the airfield, there was a funny looking device <laughs> with a rotor and all the rest of it, it turned out to be an R4. And that's the first time I met one, and I looked at it and I thought, God, you know, I wonder who flies those. That would have been, what, early 1945? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yep. And uh, forgot all about them um, after that, and uh, whenever I did think about them, uh, I thought, God, you know, what a, what a fate worse than death would that be? Anyway, um... We went back into the um, operational squadron routine and uh, we formed squadrons in Northern Ireland. We worked up and then we learned on our operations, uh, came back, formed another squadron and so on. Yeah. And that went on quite a while. I guess during that period you, you added a few more aircraft types to your logbook. Not at that stage, no. Um, Mostly Corsairs. There wasn't a lot of opportunity did get to fly the Seafires, of course, um, because they, the last squadron I was in uh, had Seafires, uh, and the Odd Avenger and uh, that sort of stuff. But these were very, very tightly knit, very clean and well-controlled uh, organisations. Yeah. Um, there wasn't any surplus flying around. Yeah. It got different later on. Yeah. Was, that was at the stage when... Um, we were all expecting to go against Russia, <coughs> and we were working up because that was a, a present possibility. It didn't happen, thank God. So you're saying the other day that um, the Seafire really wasn't a naval aeroplane? Oh, never. It was a brilliant aircraft for what it was designed for. Um, Although that was inadequate in the end, as a, as a fighter aircraft, it had a very limited use. But for the Navy, it was no good. It was a small aeroplane, relatively um, fragile. It had very limited endurance. Um, and all in all, it really didn't match what we needed. The Corsair was the aircraft. That big, bold, strong... Had the um, carriage. Yes, plenty of range. Yeah. And also plenty of firepower. And, you know, in the Corsair you could, uh, you had 60, uh, six uh, 50 caliber machine guns. Each one had a, a hydraulic cocking mechanism which was down on the right hand side yep. here. So if you had a stoppage you could clear it. In the Seafire you had no such thing. Uh, we had four 20 millimeter cannons, none of which seemed to be very willing to join you when you pressed press the button. And, you know, if one of them wasn't working, your chances of being able to sight on somebody long enough to hit it uh, were not very good. Yeah. And your best bet was to get the first one right, and then it kicked off, and you had to hose it about a bit after that. Yeah, just hoping that you're going to hit something. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, very narrow tracked undercarriage, of course, not really good for carrying type landings. Narrow undercarriage. Um, it was an aircraft built for grass airfields. Yeah. And, um, it did remarkably well, and it does uh, the designers a great deal of credit that they actually survived it all. And of course, the, the Griffin engine, Seafire, was a, was a real box of tricks. Uh, you had to be very careful what you did with it. 
um, takeoff was really quite spectacular. You'd, uh, you'd sitting on the, on the chocks there, uh, open up the full power chocks were where the brakes off, full rights, took full left rudders. You went by the island, hoping like hell <laughs> you'd get some control by the time you reached the forward end. <laughs> You always did, as it happened, but it was quite a, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Everything oh, in opposite oh, corners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was quite an impressive airplane in its own way, but um, as a warplane it was outdated by the time we got it. Okay, so did you start your, your test pilot flying on fixed-wing aircraft first before you moved into the helicopters? No, um, I went straight from um, from a condition which was unbelievably depressing. Um, when they stopped forming squadrons, we were all sent on leave, which was um, terrible, because I couldn't go home. We didn't have room at home. Uh, I hadn't got any money to stay on leave, so... <laughs> I kept on asking for a, another appointment, and in the end they got fed up with me turning up and uh, uh, demanding something to do. So they sent me off to, to uh, Caldrose on a link trainer course, which of course was, you know, that was sudden death to a fighter man. Yeah. And uh, I thought if I live through this I'll probably be alright, but um, the chances <laughs> of happening are not very good. Anyway, I did my link trainer course, and I was then appointed as link trainer officer and officer in charge of the um, Astanaboy School at Eglinton in Northern Ireland, which is where we used to work up our squadrons. That wasn't too bad, but, you know, there was really nothing for me to do. So I was flying the station at Harvard, teaching the commander how to fly and getting into everybody's nose. And I got so fed up with this, I thought, you know, I'd like to get out of the Navy now, if, if this is all it's going to be. So I used to go along to the captain's secretary, and I said, look, any flying course, apply for it. I don't care what it is, as long as it's a flying course, get me out of here. And bless her heart, she did, and came back one day, after several months, and said, look, you've got smack 20. So I said, well, what's that? So I don't know what it is. I went back to the office and looked it up in AFOs and Smack 20 was a helicopter course. So I packed away the link train and went straight down to Gosport to the uh, to 705 squadron, <coughs> which was uh, the helicopter training squadron. And I thought, this is, can't be worse than link trainers, but <laughs> at least you do get airborne. Anyway, I, you know, I was in despair by this time. But the moment I stepped into one of those things and got airborne in it, I realized that this is what I'd wanted all my life. And from that moment on, I took to the thing like duck to the water. Yeah. And I really enjoyed myself, and it was probably the happiest flying time I've ever had. So Nobody knew anything about them. Nobody wanted to know, so you were entirely your own boss. You could do what the hell you like, when you like. And it was a marvellous situation for a naval officer to be in. Yeah, so what, what uh, helicopter types were they using for training then? That was um, the R4. Ah, you'd seen it before. <laughs> yes, that's the one I saw in the Floyd Bennett. Um, a square box-like structure covered in canvas and made up of steel tubes. Very primitive. Um, very much a man's airplane. And uh, I had a lot of um, traps that the young aviator would get into. Getting it off the ground was one of the difficult things. Um, in summer it wouldn't hover, except in the most favourable conditions, and getting airborne into forward flight was quite frightening. When they first did it for me, I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that, because you over-rev the rotor as far as you dare go, and then pulled up the collective pitch lever quickly, stuffed the stick forward so that you're pointing at the ground about 45 degrees, and the aircraft was then going towards the ground, but in forward flight, before you hit the ground, you, you had to drop the collective pitch lever and pull it up again to get the rotor RPM up, which by this time had got down to a dangerous level. And if you were lucky, you could milk it into forward flight. 
And after a while, it became one of these sort of rather nice manoeuvres that uh, you, you were very pleased to be able to do. Probably impressed the hell out of passengers. <laughs> the passengers didn't like it much at all. <laughs> and uh, I spent a lot of time on R4, and uh, fortunately was appointed to look after the um, underwater development flight at uh, Portland Harbour, which meant you got the best of all worlds. You got the R4 on floats. And so you got, you know, you were mucking about in boats and you were flying helicopters at the same time. So it's really wonderful. And uh, as I said, nobody wanted to know you because <laughs> they didn't like the look of it. They didn't understand it. And they, we could always say, well, of course, we can't tell you what we're doing. Because it's all top secret. Okay, so you're doing the R4 stuff and, and obviously a lot of development work uh, for the Navy in terms of helicopter operations. Yes, we were poking around to try and find out what we could do with an aeroplane that was extremely limited. And um, we did uh, quite a few things that were useful, like radar calibration. Um, what I was doing at the underwater development establishment, you couldn't do in any other way. We were following underwater um, weapon systems as they plowed along. Um, it was very simple, very primitive. Uh, yeah. Uh, stuff. They put a headlight in, in the nose of the thing. You could <laughs> track it underwater. You got it right and found it. You could follow it to see what it was doing. Um, I nearly got shot down by one actually. Was, um, some of the torpedoes would would get to the end of their run and they didn't. They'd sink and then the nose would come out of the water. You think there it is. Uh, we were there because we wanted to find out where it was. They didn't want to lose it. Yeah. Um, and I motored up to the thing. And then all of a sudden it lit up, it found some power from somewhere. It leapt out of the water and very nearly shot me down. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a bit hard to explain. I was shot down it by would a have torpedo, been extremely sir. Difficult, <laughs> but it it missed me by a narrow margin and it's a lesson you learn. Um, yeah, we we did a lot of things like that. But the aircraft was so limited that there were, you know, there's not a lot you could do with it. Yeah. But we did have other aircraft coming on. There was the R6, which was a sort of a cleaned-up, modernised version of the R4, but was a real death trap. The forces on, on the controls were quite high, and at one stage of the game it was um, necessary to have two people aboard because you needed two people to move the collective pitch lever. And uh, one day I, I found this... Uh, uh, was a re reality that uh, you know I thought was perhaps uh, not necessary. I was doing a climb and discovered that I couldn't push the collective lever down and it wouldn't go. You were just <laughs> heading for the I, heavens. <laughs> I beat the altitude record for helicopters at that time before I had <laughs> to dislodge it. <laughs> and um, uh, that wasn't much of a use, that aircraft, and we didn't have more than the odd one. And then, of course, um, uh, real helicopters began to appear, like the S-51. Yes, so that was um, the early 50s, yeah. Yes, and, and then the S-55, of course. And by the time the S-55 came along, I was away from... Uh, I was, incidentally, uh, one of these typical um, British compromises. The Navy didn't have a qualified flying instructor to teach helicopters, and I was flying helicopters and teaching other people. And they suddenly realised that uh, he's not qualified. They said, how do we get him qualified? No, no, nobody could do it. So what they did, they sent me off to Central Flying School, where I was a qualified, I made a qualified instructor on, on fixing aircraft yeah. and also on jets. And then I came back to the squad and a qualified helicopter instructor. <laughs> <laughs> looked in the mirror and said, I'm now a QFIH. Yeah, nobody asked any questions. I, was, uh, I could show them my instructor's certificate and that was it. Anyway, that's what happened in those days, you know, and with helicopters being such hard birds. Um, I guess it was a big step when you start talking about the S-55s and things. You're starting to get into what was really the second generation of helicopters, isn't it? Much yes, the S-55 was a proper aeroplane. The S-61 was a box of tricks. Um, there was a lot about the S-61 which needed cleaning up. But nevertheless, it was an aeroplane that you could actually use and you could carry things in it. Yeah. And so we did a lot of work. And um, because I was the sort of top man in... in 
uh, in the squadron in terms of experience. I was sent to the um, Armament and Experimental Establishment as the Naval Helicopter Representative on D Squadron, which was the uh, which had the flight which um, looked at helicopters for the British services. Yeah. And that's when I got into test flying proper. Yeah, at Boscombe Down. At Boscombe Down, yes. yes. And um, that was absolutely wonderful. Um, because at that stage of the game, there were helicopters popping up from all over the place. You know, a lot of companies were, were getting in on it, and so we had prototype aircraft to feed on. Um, and oh, it was really unbelievable. So I flew and was responsible for the, you know, clearance of an awful lot of, uh, of the aircraft through from the um, S-51 right the way through to the Belvedere and um, other foreign aircraft um, such as the Alouette and, and so on. So what was the first British helicopter you came face to face with? I suppose it was the um, Sycamore which was a very fine aircraft and uh, unfortunately had one or two um, things about it that weren't particularly uh, pleasant. But it was an aircraft that was designed for the high-speed cruise. And it was a civilian aircraft, yeah. really, yeah. essentially, yeah. Uh, adapted to the services, of course. It always had a sleek look to it, didn't it? Oh, it did. And it was designed um, to be... Uh, at a high-speed cruising, it did that extremely well. But once you got into the hover, of course, because the fuselage was designed to be more or less level in forward flight, you ended up <laughs> like this, um, nose up. And the landing and takeoff were a little bit tricky as a result of that. You landed on the tail scale and then lowered the rest of the aircraft down to the ground. Um, and takeoff was also... Um, there was an awful lot of stick movement. I think we caught the stick went from here, around here like this, and then up there. <laughs> Once you'd got the, uh, um, the idea of what was going to happen, it was okay. And it was a very fine aeroplane. So did you, did you take that from basically the prototype and do the, the test flight? Yes, the, we did. Yeah. Um, so, so as you were saying the other day, the aeroplane arrives, there's, there's no instruction manual and what to do with it, or well, what, uh, apart uh, from the engineers' <coughs> sort of critiques, if you like. Of well, at Boston Down, of course, you, you're the second stage of yeah. flying a prototype, a prototype aircraft. The, the company gets it airborne, and, yeah. and, you know, and then when it's ready, they think to offer to the services, they give it to Boston Down, and Boston um, then checks everything and says yes or no, we'll accept the aircraft. Um, that's in very simple terms, of course. It doesn't always work out like that. And, you know, you do all kinds of things for the first time, um, such as the company naturally doesn't want to break its aircraft, so um, there are corners of the envelope where you have to go a little bit further, and the chances of breaking the airplane are a little bit more real. And it very often happens, of course, in an effort to try to just set down the corners of the envelope, you broke the airplane in the process of doing it. Yeah, because the military requirement for the helicopter, uh, as we all know, is going to push the envelope right into those corners on most That's occasions, right. because you've got, <coughs> yeah. you've got to think of every scenario that it could possibly be in, mm -hmm. and, and what's the aircraft going to do when I need to get out of this situation, what's the yeah. force? If yeah. I overload it, if I over-torque it, if I whip it round the corner too quick, what's it going to do? And, yeah. and of course then document all that and, and basically work back from that to build your safety margin. That's right. Yeah. It was interesting work, um, some of it quite dangerous, um, but really we enjoyed it enormously. And of course, as I say, you had an endless supply of, of new aircraft to deal with. Um, and, you know, you, you're always doing things which uh, haven't been done before, which was nice. But D Squadron also had what they call the droppings flight, <laughs> which was, was a bit of relief for us because... Um, Flying the helicopters was okay, but we really needed to keep in touch a little bit with Pixar. And uh, the dropping flight was there really to 
explore the prospects of dropping anything from the sky, either on parachutes or without parachutes or what have you. Um, and we used to do this uh, close to Boscombe Down, which was, was quite interesting. You know, a D6 bulldozer suddenly uh, exiting from the back of a transport aircraft with virtually nothing much to hold it up. And when you see things like that bounce about 50 feet into the air, it's, it's good fun. <laughs> we enjoy that enormously. As you were saying the other day, uh, that again, the the test flying that you did, um, takeoffs and landings, short circuits, close to your home base. So everything was, you know, highly concentrated in terms of oh, yeah. you, 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 obviously you set yourself a program and ticked off various things as you went through it and um, reviewed them and then perhaps went back to them again. Some of them you do two or three times just to make oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Was... I mean, uh, sometimes they were difficult to do and uh, the weather conditions weren't right. Um, so you had to repeat the... Uh, there was, the idea was to not waste any time, mm. because the aircraft and also the program had no time to spare. And so everything you did in the air, it started from start-up until touchdown, and uh, you're trying all the time to get each little bit of the program done as quickly and as efficiently as you could. Mm. Did so. you do a lot of that dual? So you had two... Well, not very often two pilots, but you, you normally had a flight test observer mm. whose job it was to well, really to mind, <laughs> remind you what the program was, and also to record the instruments yeah. uh, and also operate the recorder mm. buttons necessary. Because we usually the aircraft was full of recorder boxes in the back, and uh, we were recording stresses and strains in the structure. Yeah as well as the normal things like speed and uh, altitude yeah. and whatnot. Yes, it, was, um, it was wonderful because we had some... In fact, that, I suppose, was one of the great delights of getting into test flying, both in the Navy and also in, in civilian life, was the people that you had to work with. They were really of the highest calibre. And the most pleasant, well, mostly the most pleasant individuals you could yeah. ever wish to meet. Yeah, aerodynamicists, engineers. Oh, the... right from yeah. you know one end of the, the business to the other. Yeah. And uh, I guess the other thing too is that the company's representatives would have been taking very keen interest on your progress because at the end of the day it would mean sales. Oh yes, yeah. Well, it, uh, you know. It, a program, a military program, um, has no spare. Everything has to be done yesterday, and if possible, half the price. <laughs> but we, uh, you know, we muddled along quite happily. And um, when you think of what the UK industry was capable of doing during those immediate years after the Second World War, it is fantastic for the money. Um, the taxpayers got an awful big return, yeah. and they didn't realise it, and people don't realise it now. You know, it all, all ended really with, with um, Concord and um, that sort of thing, uh, when suddenly there just was no money there. Yeah. yeah. So, so you did you carried on as a service test pilot. When did you decide to change across to the civilian environment? Well, the Navy is a funny creature. It, if it had left me at, at Boston Down, I would have been as happy as Larry. But, of course, um, in the Navy, um, the fact that I was an aviator and a test pilot and so on was of no consequence at all. And so they, uh, they decided that I had to go back to the Navy and whatever that meant. <laughs> and so they dragged me off Boston Down. And they made me flight commander of the... Uh, um, SE rescue flight on uh, what was it now? I get these mixed up. Was it Theseus or Centaur? I think it was Theseus. And uh, you know that was really a, a step down because uh, you know, from being an expert, I was now sort of Joe everybody, yeah. um, which uh, is a slap in the face. It stops you getting up yourself. 
Um, but it wasn't much fun. And uh, were you a lieutenant commander by then? Were you? Uh, getting close to it, yeah. yes, I can't remember what it just yeah. happened there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, uh, it was interesting watching other people fly aeroplanes. And it was the time when the angle deck was beginning to come in, when jet aircraft were beginning to be used. Yeah. And I've always said that, uh, you know, one of our biggest problems was we couldn't see out of the aeroplanes we were flying onto the deck. And um, when I got onto jet aircraft at the Central Flying School, I realised the Navy had got to go this way because you sat in the front of the thing and the world was right straight out ahead of you, yeah. you know. And that's what we needed. Um, it slowly happened, but um, by the time it happened seriously, I was uh, in civilian, uh, well, flying for a civilian company. Yeah, when you think about it, the first British carrier jets, like the Civic, they were all still tailwind. Oh, no, Seahawks. Seahawks, yeah. Seahawks, and uh, they did some work on the va on the vampire. Yep. In fact, a mate of mine who was in 1835, he went to um, test flying school and stayed there after he graduated, and he did some work on the, um, the vampire with no undercarriage, landing on a, a, a soft deck. Yeah, I've seen footage of that. Yes. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> A good idea, but, you know, not really terribly practical. Mm. He made it work all right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you think you've got... Uh, getting on the deck was okay. <laughs> Just getting the airplane somewhere where it wasn't going to intrude into the next flight. Um, yeah. But, no, I... Uh, <laughs> the Navy, of course, um, thought that that would, would do me good. Um, and, uh, in a sense, it did. I was able to do some work on um, recovery systems for um, downed pilots. Um, we were equipped with uh, S-51s, which were totally inadequate for the rescue, really. And one of the problems is that you had to have a, an air crewman to go down on the wire to attach himself to the, uh, uh, to the rescuee and then come back up again. But when he w left the aircraft, communicating with him was, was very precarious. Mm. You couldn't see him, not from the S-51, because you were too much ahead and inside the aircraft. For a limited degree, you could talk to him, um, because he had a throat mic, but as soon as he got wet, of course, that was useless. And this poor old uh, telegraphist air gunner who'd seen the war out and uh, who was staying in the Navy to do his time, was too old, you know, that's a young, vigorous diver's yeah. job. Yeah. You've got to have somebody who's a, a half fish. Yeah. Yeah. And he couldn't handle it. Um, and we had a number of occasions when we were shamed in the eyes of the ship because we couldn't pick up the dummy. So I thought, we've got to do something about this. And I'd known that the Americans had uh, systems whereby um, you didn't need a, a second man. So I designed my own and had it built in the uh, engineering department. And we spent a long time in Malta perfecting this. And it was really a very large fishing net. It was a, 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 a tubed uh, cable yeah. with um, rope netting in it. And I could trawl this along just under the water until I came to the, um, to the down airman and then just lift him out of the water, bring him up alongside and then turn it facing the aircraft and pull him in. Yeah. It was so simple, so easy, and of course it, it had the other advantage that it didn't matter whether you were picking up something that you wanted to take into the cabin or not. If you were picking up dead bodies... They could stay in. They could stay in the net. Yeah. And they didn't have to help themselves and uh, to get into the net in the first place. And of course, as soon as the commandos saw this, they thought, God, this is just what we need. And I, I was... <laughs> I was not attacked because that's all right, but I was besieged by um, by the commandos in Malta to let them have a go at this, and uh, we worked out routines whereby they could be recovered from water. And we could have done it at night too. So that does get adapted, was adopted by the rest of the navy. Because um, I know at the Cavadero Club, we actually had one of those scoop nets. I think it was. Yeah. Um, but 
1955, I got a letter from Fairy Aviation asking me if I'd like to come out of the Navy and uh, be the second pilot on the um, Rotterdam project. So I left the ship in Malta in 55, and as uh, two and a half, went to fair aviation as, uh, as the other test pilot doing the Rotterdam uh, with Ron Gallifrey, who was brilliant man. He was a Kiwi and uh, a man of enormous uh, capabilities. <clears throat> and that's where in my career outside the Navy, I was still in the Navy incidentally, and oh, for years and years after that, but I was transferred to the um, uh, Royal Naval Reserve. So, yeah. And I refused to go and do um, sort of administrative training every year. And uh, in the end, they asked me to leave because I obviously wasn't doing it their way. So, but, yeah, that's interesting. So the old ferry Rotodyne course, um, when you, when you, that stage when you saw it, it's actually a very large aircraft. It was one of the biggest helicopters in the world, yeah. yes. Um, a 30-odd seater. Um, quite revolutionary, of course. In order to work up the technology and also the techniques um, the, on which the Rotodyne was based, we had the Gyrodyne, yeah. which was um, a small convertible gyroplane. And um, that's him, yep, yeah. yep. That was quite an aeroplane in its own way. It was totally useless, of course, because it was just a research project. And, uh, but it taught us a lot about um, tripjet motors, uh, about the supply of um, combustible air to the tips, yeah. and uh, also the effect of um, going from helicopter flight into autogyro flight with the uh, assistance of the propeller. And, uh, it why was a why, why do you think Ferry went down that road in terms of well, because they, they they had this idea for for the uh, Rotodyne, and uh, one way of getting over the problem of, uh, of high speed in helicopters was to offload the rotor, mm. and uh, so everything led in that direction in those days. But there were a lot of other ideas. Um, um, Igor Sikorsky had the idea of the the very stiff rotor, but a double decker. Rotating in opposite direction, yeah, yeah. so you didn't get any of the rolling. Which, which the Russians, of course, developed quite extensively. Yes, it would never actually came to anything very no. much. Um, but uh, we would, we were better off, up to a certain limited speed, of course. Um, and that was a program that uh, that was sort of Ferries was a very gentlemanly organisation and not a very big company either. And at the same time, they had the FD two, which was. Um, very speed record breaker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they had a lot to do. But the, the genius of the design staff at Ferries was really quite something to be part of. I'm so privileged that, um, that I could spend those years with them. Men who, with no pretensions whatsoever, were capable of doing almost anything. You just told them what you wanted and they'd find a way of doing it. Mm. And, you know, it really was quite exceptional. Yeah, so the Gyrodyne, of course, was was a well-established aircraft by the time you joined them, so... Yes, in fact, it had a, um, it killed its first um, test pilot, yeah. and, and they modified it after that, and uh, it nearly killed me on a couple of occasions, but, but that was my fault, really, not the airplanes. Um, but it was big and big rotor, Tremendous amount of kinetic energy, and um, we we had a lot of fun with it. But it didn't lead us very far, unfortunately. It was mainly um, the development of the tip jet motors that was of value, because we we could go from there to the to the much larger and more complicated um, rotodyne motors. And the man in charge of the, uh, the tip jet motor. Um, development was um, August Stepan, uh, a little Austrian of incredible energy <laughs> and a wonderful guy. <laughs> he started off in Germany um, 
with Volkov and uh, uh, Schlieffen and somebody else. Um, and they, they were captured by the British and brought back because they thought we might be able to exploit them a bit. And uh, Stepan was given to fairies and told to carry on what, doing what he was doing in Germany. So he got a shed in the corner of the, <laughs> of the airfield somewhere and started on chip chats. So power for those tip jets was just taken, it's only a single engine, so it went through a gearbox to, to drive the main rotor plus the two. What, the the, the, the gyro? The gyro, yeah. Yes, oh yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes, it was a Leonides um, yeah. lying on its back, which it didn't like. Um, <laughs> and uh, that, that would either drive the rotor or the propeller, yeah. plus a compressor. A compressor for the yeah, yeah. tip jets, yeah. And, uh, oh, it worked all right. Uh, I, I, would, I was always very nervous when I heard it because the Leonides upset me a bit. I, for some reason or other, Leonides and I didn't get on. I was doing some work in a, in a Leonides driven trainer. What the hell was that? Provost. Oh, yep, yep, it'll be personal, yeah, personal. That was working on the Gendervik autopilot from uh, being developed by ML Aviation at that uh, ferry the, the other side of the airfield at White Walton. And they asked me if I'd do the flying. And this was a prototype aircraft with a very early engine. And it was always doing funny things, and eventually it, it did its nut. And I just managed to get it back on the ground. Fortunately, um, that was the end of that program for some reason. So, did you uh, get into the the ultralight before you went onto the rotor dive as well? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that that in itself is a, <laughs> the most unusual looking yes, aircraft? A bit of a blunt instrument. Rather, <laughs> but, yeah. It was great fun, and uh, it, it taught us a lot. But I mean, it was an aeroplane that was so highly specialised that it was almost useless for anything other than what the army had in mind for it. Yeah. Was it basically going to be a sort of reconnaissance scout type? It was a skyhook, yeah. yeah. Um, it was designed to um, live on the back of the truck in the forward areas of the battlefield. So if the army wanted to see what was going on ahead, they could um, launch it and it would pop up 3,000 feet a minute, yeah. have a quick look around, and 3,000 a minute back, back down onto its truck. <laughs> And, um, you know, which was fine, and it did that, and it did it very well. And in addition to that, we managed to make it carry another person as well. Mm. So, um, you know, but really, the idea of, of that sort of thing for the army was ridiculous. That was it. So, did you, for that one, did you take it from its initial flights? Yes. So, yeah, so yeah. It wheeled it out of the factory and said, here we are, John, <laughs> take it away. Yeah, that's right. They wheeled it out one day, and uh, Ron and I flew it that day, and uh, we both came to the same conclusion that it was a death trap. Um, the the big problem, of course, apart from the tip jets, which were very experimental at that stage of the game, and just getting them lit and keeping them lit was, was something that was always um, top of our mind. Um, the controls were were unconventional as far as we were concerned. It had a hanging stick when it first came to us. No hydraulics. And the hanging stick was really most unsatisfactory. It had ergonomic problems which um, were really quite dangerous. And there's also another problem which uh, I was particularly prone to. With a stick up here and a rotor up there, and knowing what a rotor does, when you go into forward flight, the rotor goes like that. Tilts forward, yeah. So the logical thing then is to pull the stick back, because it feels as though a stick and the rotor are attached to one another. And they were. And I found that from time to time, I was mentally reversing everything. Yeah. But the main thing, was, I mean, that was just a, a sideline. The main thing was that the controls were too heavy, and the stick went round in a circle like this. And uh, we said, look, these controls are too heavy to be flown safely. And I rang up Dr. Hislop uh, while Ron was flying, and I said, look, Doc, if you want this airplane to survive, you're going to have to do something about the controls. And from that moment on, the aircraft 
taken back to the factory, redesigned, and we were back again in almost next to no time with uh, hydraulic controls and a, and a floor mounted stick. Yeah. And that was the sort of response we had from. Uh, yeah. See, longitudinally, uh, direction is because it's got no tail rotor, so it was just not a blow. No, well, that um, that flap, if you like, was yeah. operating in the efflux from the engine. Yeah, so it was like a rudder. Mm. Yeah. A rudder. Effective rudder. Yeah. yeah. So providing the engine was providing some efflux. Well, if you had forward flight. Yeah, forward flight. Yeah. yeah. It, so it, yeah, okay. So was that that effective? You'd well, we were we were both Ryan and I were worried about that initially because yeah. <clears throat> one of the big problems in helicopters is. Um, is sideways flight um, or crosswind flight, for yeah. instance. You have to have quite a lot of tail rotor power to be able to do it. And uh, this was always a critical thing that you investigated. And when we saw that, we thought, oh God, you know, there's no way you're going to be able to go sideways much on this or be out of wind. Uh, but actually, it worked a lot better than we thought it was going to. Mm. And being such a small aeroplane, you really didn't need to do a lot of No, because everything's close together, so you, you yeah. are getting a lot of right. influence from it. It was adequate, it, providing yeah. you were ingenious in the way in which you, uh, you flew the aircraft. Mm. 